A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. by Paul Blake. Here is its sign, schwa, an E doing handstands, because although we say it with every breath, it does not have a letter in my language. The sound of hesitation, uncertain, diffident, creeping between the consonants like a cat weaving between legs. Not the rough breathing of Rhein, harsh as sand-laced wind, nor the brisk closing of gates in a glottal stop. Schwa, uh, uh, her. The thing it knows is quietly moving on. It's raison d'etre's helping things to flow. So we do, breathe and carry on, as we must to get where we're going. Uh, uh, huh, simple schwa. And its sign, turned E, might not seem right. Too much the show-off for this little sound, this sigh we make, the body's opening to the wide world of air. Yet, Surely something should do handstands at the sweetness of breath, that necessary, lovely thing, so rarely noticed when we are at our ease, when every breath flows freely. Something that remembers soul, that soul is also a breath infusing us, a wind, ruach, that blows through the towns of flesh. Ruach, whose root also means perfume. Paul, where did this poem come from? Well, I I seem to remember being told, actually, that when authors do uh, book signings, that's the second most hated question. Where do you, where do your where do your ideas come from? <laughs> the, the first most hated, of course, being I've written this manuscript and will you read it for me? Yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, in fact, uh, I think a little unusually, this this has a relatively clear genesis for me, um, and. Basically, I've always been fascinated by linguistics. Now, mm-hmm. I have to stress, I am not a professional linguist. I have um, an educated layman's interest in linguistics. But, but you know, it seems to me it's the kind of the, the equivalent for poets of, of reading the 
the uh, the engineer's manual on your car. You know, it's, it's <laughs> all about all the stuff that's happening under the bonnet. Yes, yes, that's very so, true. So, so, so um, <laughs> linguistics fascinates me, um, and comparative linguistics is fascinating. The, the way I think this this is this is what really fascinated me when I started to learn other languages, and I realised that well, they don't do it the same way we do. You know, that's fascinating. That there's more than one way to achieve that effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I, I have, as I say, a lifelong interest in linguistics, and of course, part of linguistics is phonology, the study of sounds. So, you know, I have a, a very bad habit of kind of occasionally clicking on Wikipedia articles on particular IPA symbols, IPA being uh-huh. the international phonetic alphabet that's used yeah. to represent all these different sounds, and 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 reading about all these peculiar sounds. Um, and one of the sounds which we have in virtually, I think virtually all languages have a version of this, is, is this schwa. And schwa is what they call, I think, uh, a central mid unstressed vowel sound, something like that. Anyway. And it's it's just a very neutral. It's that neutral sound that we get in in English when we're not stressing anything, like the a and about. Mm-hmm. And I, what first struck me about it was what a wonderful word that is, schwa. Mm. I mean, it's so un-English, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and and in fact, the the it, it's partly because of the, English has this wonderful habit of grabbing words from other languages. And, and so we get these, these fascinating little nuggets appearing in English that don't really look or sound very English. And um, I'm, I believe that, in fact, uh, a modern Hebrew speaker would pronounce it Shava. And it's because it's a Hebrew word in origin. Mm. And um, Hebrew actually has a sign not not a letter because of course in Hebrew they only write consonants. Mm-hmm. But it has a the, Hebrew has little signs that go underneath the consonants if you're writing it in full, and one of these is called Shabbat, and it represents this uh sound. Hmm. And the reason that uh, that we have acquired this is not actually by it's by German because all the best linguists in the nineteenth century were Germans, of course, and quite a lot of them were also Jewish. And um, so a, a German linguist was studying, well, was, was writing about the, the unstressed E in German. If you have an E at the end of a word in German, it is this er sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so they needed a name for it and they called it, they, they borrowed the Hebrew word schwa. Mm-hmm. Of course, in German, the W would be pronounced like a V. Yeah. So schwa. Uh-huh. But when we've imported it into English, it's become schwa, and it's just such a, it's such a nice sound. So I was just fascinated by this sound schwa, and um, <laughs> so so I thought, you know, what is it that's fascinating about it? And it's it's just such a neutral sound. It is it's such a shy little sound, and I kind of. It kind of struck me that it it rather fitted with um, a particular stereotype of Englishness. This idea of the the rather hesitant, shy, 
polite English person. Mm-hmm. So one of the drivers for this poem was was actually a kind of meditation on that kind of hesitant Englishness. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's probably not terribly apparent in the poem as it now exists, but it is there underlying it. Uh, and and so, yeah, you know, I think the poem talks about this idea of hesitancy, and how it it's diffidence kind of thing, and that there isn't a letter for it in English. And because yeah, that would be ostentatious, wouldn't it? Uh, exactly, exactly. And and so, um, the interesting thing is that the the symbol that linguists use is this upside down e because. As I say, it was Germans who thought of it, and they wanted to show how how we're going to write an e when it's not stressed. Well, let's write it upside down. Hmm. So that's how we get the symbol, which is an upside down e, a lowercase right. e upside down. Right. And it, it's it's a rather curious little sign. And and um, so so and this this phrase came to me. It's an e doing handstands, uh, and that meditation on Englishness and the idea of an E doing handstands is exactly where this poem comes from. But it's not where it ends. No, it's not. Well, let's go there in a minute. But I mean, this this is very interesting to me because firstly, thank you for clearing up the mystery of why, <laughs> why it's that upside down E, which had been kind of niggling me for a while. And it was Interesting, you know, I've read the poem quite a few times, but it was only when you read it just now that that line, the sound of hesitation, uncertain, diffident, struck me as, oh, that's so English. That's why we have so many schwas. Mm. Exactly so. Exactly so. I mean, it did seem to me, gosh, you know, virtually every unstressed vowel in English, kind of, at least in the southern dialects, devolves devolves into a schwa. And so it is, it's an incredibly English sound, not only an English sound, but very much an English sound. And yet we don't have a distinguishing letter for it, which is perhaps typical of our rather strange orthography. <laughs> yeah, and it's almost like it's, it's greying out the vowels. Yes, exactly. That, that's, that's very much uh, how it is. I think it, it, it hasn't got, it loses colour. Yeah, it loses colour when we don't have stress on it. And again, looking at it now, I'm noticing how many languages you've got in here. So you've got the schwa, which, as we've seen, is from at least two languages. And then you've got the the beautiful Hebrew words that I can't pronounce. <laughs> and Arabic, too. <laughs> oh, OK. So we, maybe you could gloss those, so, so, the ignorant among us, <laughs> i.e. me. Well, the Ein... I mean, it is a letter in in modern Hebrew, but I think they, if I understand correctly, they don't make the distinction anymore in modern Hebrew mm-hmm. between the the softer breathing and the the rough breathing. But Arabic still does. So rain, it's down in your throat, and wow. and it's called. It is technically called rough. Well, one of the descriptions of it of rain sound is is rough breathing. So they talk about soft breathing and rough breathing. Mm-hmm. And um, so be, uh, because I don't speak Hebrew, but I do know a bit of Arabic, um, I had to kind of borrow what I knew of Arabic 
to to kind of run into the Hebrew side of things. But we do get to Hebrew at the end with the Ruach. And, and but before we get there, what, what does Hein mean? Well, Hein is one of the letters of the Arabic alphabet. Oh. Um, so it's the thi- it's a th- the thing that looks. Uh, you may if you if you look at individual Arabic letters, it looks like it looks like a three written backwards. Oh. And uh, at least it does when it's not joined up to other things. But uh, we won't go there. Uh, <laughs> um, and it it it's quite a major bit of Arabic uh, phonology that they have these these throaty sounds in mm-hmm. Arabic, and and so um, if I say I'm just trying trying to think of two words that I can contrast it, um, abd and rabd, they're two different words in Arabic because the sound mm-hmm. is slightly different from right, what is down right, in your right. throat. And um, so, yes, so, so, so that, that was, that's, that's where the Ayn comes in. Um, and it, it was because I was trying to contrast this idea of this very kind of shy, neutral sound and other, what you might call breath sounds, but which are much more forceful. So you've got Ayn and you've, you've got the, the, the glottal stop, which... Uh, we also have in English, particularly in in London dialects. But um, glot will stop. Glot will stop. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so yes, it was it was thinking about different ways that we we that our breath moves in and out of our throat when we speak. Um, that, and uh, I think that that's something I really love about this is it just makes you aware of. Because it's, I mean, we, we take language for granted so often, the way it looks, the way it sounds. And what I think you've done in this poem is expose that, that essential strangeness, that it's a physical activity yes. and we could be doing it differently. And maybe, you know, maybe we've inherited something that, you know, we don't even know where it's from and yet we use it every day. And it's, it's literally that, well, that mouthful of air, to call it, coin a phrase. Yes. Where you know, where the language is, is emanating from the physical action. Yes, I, 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 it's something that, that fascinates me. I mean, in, in the, the pamphlet in which this uh, poem is found, you know, I'm, a lot of the poems talk about either the physicality of language or even the, the physicality of writing. Now, these, are, these are themes that, that keep coming up in my poems. You know, I, I think we forget the physicality of things at our peril. And it's, it's even something that, you know, it, in my, my occasional um, work as a, a, a reviewer of poetry, one of the first things I do when I look at poetry collection is I look at it as a book, as a physical object. Mm-hmm. Is it a nice thing to hold? Yes. Does it, does it look nice? Does it feel nice? Does it smell nice? You know, mm. um, these are all things that, that kind of, impact i think on our, our understanding and interpretation of poetry well certainly the, in the case of a massacre of hummingbirds your pamphlet where this is from um it is a beautiful little object it's really you've got a lovely weight of paper and yeah stonewood press did a really nice job on it it's, it is it's it's a nice thing to hold in your hand and it's nicely pocket sized indeed 
Okay, so you said just now that that you told us where the poem started, but you said it is not where it ended up. Maybe you could tell us a bit about that journey. Yeah, um, as I say, I was thinking about the sounds and then, as I say, about a certain aspect of Englishness and how that perhaps contrasts with other other languages, really. Wondering even at the back of my mind, although I don't think you can really see it in the poem, whether to what extent the language we speak actually shapes our behaviour. You may know there's hmm. this thing called the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis that says, you know, you, that language shapes thought. But does it actually shape behaviour as well? If you have a language that's full of polite circumlocutions, does yeah. that actually affect the way you, you behave in, 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 in public with other people? Perhaps it does. Or is it the other way around? Nobody, nobody's really in a hmm. position to say, does it start with the cultural thing and then that? the language or does the language affect the culture i think they're so intertwined it's perhaps difficult to say but so so i say that it, it, i started with that and then while i was thinking about um breath um it came to me that the um hebrew has this word ruach which means as I understand it, um, a wind, but it also means spirit. Hmm. And Arabic has very similar words which come from this, as you may know, all Semitic languages work on this idea of a three-consonant root or a three-letter root from which you develop various words. Um, so this, this R, uh, breath, H, root, uh, in in both Hebrew and Arabic is used for things to do with with breath with wind, but it come to mean spirit. So um, mm. I believe that in the Hebrew version of Genesis, where it talks about the spirit of God resting on the waters, the word is ruach Elohim, the the breath mm. of God or the spirit. So so you had this uh, this 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 thought came to me that actually there's a kind of spiritual element to this which is probably actually deeply unfashionable in 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 modern poetry but there you know there is almost a religious element to this poem and so suddenly i found myself writing about soul now i have to stress i'm not a formal believer in any religion but we are shaped by our culture which is you know shaped by thousands of years of, of belief yeah and um you know suddenly as i say i find myself i find myself writing about soul um and uh yeah that wasn't really where i expected to end up when i started by thinking oh isn't schwa a lovely word and isn't that really the big joy of writing poetry that it surprises you that you you find yourself it's it's that discovery yeah uh, yeah. Yes, I, I think writing a poem, in the best cases, is a process of discovery. Um, so things pop out of our subconscious or wherever these ideas come from um, that we 
didn't really expect to see. I mean, think, and also, I think the process of writing poems often brings together things that we didn't expect to see together. Yeah. And that definitely happened with this poem. So what was that process like for you? I mean, what, what was the first draft like? And then what was, what was the process you went through to get to the, the finished form? And, and I guess I'm curious about where the, yeah, I, where the surprise popped up. I, I, think, um, I think editing, it, it, I mean, it, it's, I think it's sort of 70% of, at least, of writing a poem is editing. Yes. Um, and I do think that the process varies for different people. I don't, I don't think it is identical for all of us. I, it, it seems to me, from what I've heard just talking to other poets, and things, that there are, there are poets who are samurai and they come along with their, <laughs> their katanas and they slice great bloody hunks, chunks off um, the original shapeless mass until they get down to something really small and beautiful and concentrated. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I think my editing, I'm more of a mouse when it comes to editing. I, I nibble <laughs> at things. Uh, usually, in, usually I nibble at things in the dark. So, so very often, um, I, a, a phrase comes to me or a few lines come to me often when I'm walking or sometimes, uh, sometimes when I've just gone to bed, actually, it's another time when the, the when things, ideas come to me and mm -hmm. I tend to just, um, once upon a time, I used to write them down in a notebook, but then I was always losing the notebooks. So these days, I, I'm afraid that they go onto my iPhone in the Notes app, uh, which is probably not a very good way of doing it. But, but, um, and then, um, then I'll come back to them and I'll start putting them into um, a word processor document. And again, I used to write these things out longhand. And I think probably it's a better way really because there's always a risk when you put things into a wordpress document that they look finished before they are mm. but um, i i think i've learned not to trust that first impression so yeah. so what i tend to do is put a mass of stuff you know i'll start with a couple of lines that have really caught my attention and i'll put them down and i'll just expand and run on and see where my my thoughts take me and Usually it's fairly shapeless at first. And then, as I say, I'll start nibbling. So I'll start moving lines around, moving words around, breaking things up, seeing, does that line need to be in here at all? Um, and I'll do a little bit and then I'll stop and I'll put it away and I'll come back. Then I'll come back to it maybe a few days later, maybe a mm -hmm. week later, maybe sometimes much longer than that. So it often takes me quite a long time to achieve yeah. the finished form of a poem. Um, and and I think in the, interestingly in this case I went back and looked because I knew you were going to ask, <laughs> and I, I I looked at the at the old drafts. So yeah. I always try when I change things to save it as a new draft so I can see what I've done to it, how it's evolving. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, this one took me about a month, which is quite short for me. And there wasn't a huge change from the first draft to the first worked on draft to the final form um, because it, it's it was for some reason this it, for this one it became apparent to me quite early that it wanted to go into triplets i quite often write in in, in three line 
uh, stanzas. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, so it's quite, uh, quite a natural form for me. Um, and I appear to have experimented with making it into syllabic poetry with the same number of syllables in each line. Mm. But again, a couple of tries and it wasn't quite working. So I went back to just um, reading it out loud and listening to how it sounded, which is a way I quite often work if I'm not quite sure how to proceed. Um, does that sound right when I read it? If I break, put the break there, um, that, that, that's quite a common way of, for me of working. And and it seemed I, I I think this this went through about six or seven sort of major drafts. It lost about a quarter of its original length. It was a bit longer, mm-hmm. um, and it certain and the line endings all got moved around and rearranged, and uh, played with the punctuation, which is again something I like to do, uh, and. And it was a relatively painless editing process for this one. It's not always that, but this one was relatively painless. And one of the disadvantages of of this kind of nibbling editing I was talking about (laughs) is that sometimes it can be hard to stop. (laughs) Right. Like the the mouse with the cheese. (laughs) You can always fiddle with a line or a a word ending. Yeah. I, I I was quite good about this one. I, I seem to have stopped relatively early and decided, well, yeah, I probably could fiddle with it some, some more, but I don't think it's going to make a major difference. So uh, that that was how we ended up with the with the three line uh, stanzas, with the uh, the enjambment, the running between lines, and. Um, there's a kind of it, it's absolutely not a sonnet, but it does have a sort of a turn in it. And if you look closely at it, you'll find that the the first stanza, the last stanza, and it's I think the fourth stanza have a full stop at the end, and none of the others do. Huh. And yes, you're right. So the first is kind of a statement of where we start mm-hmm. the last is a statement of where we end and the the one with the stop in the middle is is about where the poem starts to turn away from the purely linguistic into something else uh, and that so that was actually thought through which is nice and nice to be able to mm. say that <laughs> gosh and you know i obviously hadn't noticed that but it would have had an effect no and you shouldn't Yes. I, I don't think you should, uh, mm. but it's there. <laughs> Under the hood. Uh, to me, I mean, I think form in a poem is tremendously important, but the best form is the form that you don't notice because you just read it and say, wow. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm trying to think. There, there's um, is it Catherine Simmons. Somebody wrote a, a, um, a Sestina called Sunday at the Skin Laundrette. Yes, that's Catherine Simmons. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was, and and it. I, the first time I read that, 
I didn't even realize it was a Sestina because I was so oh, no. blown away by the imagery. Yeah, that's great. I thought, that's really great. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then it was only some time after, oh, how clever. That's a Sestina, mm. you know. And that to me is the best use of form. It's when you don't even notice it, it's just there making that poem work. Yeah, because you're entranced by it. And what is it about the three line stanza that you like so much, Paul? Do you know, I, I, that's a very difficult question to answer. I mean, it's, it's by no means the only form. And recently, an awful lot of my poetry has been turning up as 14 liners, not sonnets necessarily, but it's definitely 14 liners. But, mm-hmm. but I have certainly in the past written a great deal in these, these, and I don't know, I think it's, uh, first of all, I think it's a really good form for enjambment because there's something about that unbalancedness of three yes. as opposed to four yeah. or two yeah. Yeah. that naturally makes it kind of spill over into the next thing. I, I also think it comes. <laughs> I also think a lot of it comes from reading um, Dorothy Sayers' translation of Dante. Oh right, which of course yes. is Terzarima. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But. Uh, um, it's yeah, so it, it, that's got a very formal rhyme pattern yes but it's uh, it's nonetheless a very clever use of triplets and again things move from one to the other and you know so so um i i read that relatively young so i think it's somewhere at the back of my mind as an influence i i have tried writing tetsarim but it's quite difficult to do well in english but um, very very difficult and she really sticks to it i mean arguably at the you know straining the sense yeah yeah absolutely i mean sometimes it's a little bit contrived but it's um it's 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 of its time that translation um but but yeah it was the old penguin classics one wasn't it but it's certainly very readable yes yeah and of course every one of those tercets in the divine comedy was interlocked with all of the other ones in this you know architectural edifice that Dante was building. Um, And clearly you have a a much lighter touch in your pamphlet. How do you see the relationship between this poem and the others in the collection? I think one of the interesting things about reading people's collections is that they really show our obsessions. (laughs) I think think poets have themes and things that they keep coming back to and you'll find it in a lot of their poetry and and i think this this poem is probably very uh illustrative of some of my obsessions (laughs) you know as i say the thing about linguistics the thing about the physicality the physical aspects of, of poetry how poetry which is a kind of uh as as a concept exists physically in the world through us Mm. and our bodies and those are themes that you'll find all through that collection absolutely well thank you paul for for coming on and, and reading something that is kind of so beautiful and surprising out of something that is so easily overlooked so unobtrusive so diffident as you put it. So I think maybe this would be a nice point to hear the poem again. Okay.
Toi by Paul Blake. Here is its sign, schwa, an E doing handstands. Because although we say it with every breath, it does not have a letter in my language. The sound of hesitation, uncertain, diffident, creeping between the consonants like a cat weaving between legs. Not the rough breathing of Rhein, harsh as sand-laced wind, nor the brisk closing of gates in a glottal stop. Schwa, uh, uh, her. The thing it knows is quietly moving on. It's raison d'etre's helping things to flow. So we do, breathe and carry on, as we must to get where we're going. Uh, uh, huh, simple schwa. And its sign, turned E, might not seem right. Too much the show-off for this little sound, this sigh we make, the body's opening to the wide world of air. Yet, Surely something should do handstands at the sweetness of breath, that necessary, lovely thing, so rarely noticed when we are at our ease, when every breath flows freely. Something that remembers soul, that soul is also a breath infusing us, a wind, ruach, that blows through the towns of flesh. Ruach, whose root also means perfume. Schwa by Paul Blake is from his pamphlet A Massacre of Hummingbirds, published by Stonewood Press. Paul Blake currently divides his time between North Norfolk and London. He works as a medical writer and is a consultant for the World Health Organization. He has had short stories and poems published in a variety of magazines, including IOTA, Brittle Star, Poetry Scotland, Scheherazade and Altair. His pamphlet, A Massacre of Hummingbirds, was published by Stonewood Press in 2016. His poetry has also appeared in the anthologies This Little Stretch of Life and Said and Done. And he regularly reviews first collections for Brittle Star magazine. His poem, Triboluminescence, was highly commended in the Forward Prize for Poetry. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of 
every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at amouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links as well as a full episode archive at amouthfulofair.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem.